When I say remote, I mean, there was no address for the mailbox. There was no mailbox, no cell phone reception, no TV, no radio, no contact. I had to go into the village to get Wi-Fi. A pothole would be the size of a bathtub. You know, you can't ride bicycles there. And there are feral dogs that would come and try to eat you if you're on a bicycle. Like it, it is a very different world. In a corporate world, where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Tabitha Scott. Tabitha is an award-winning author and speaker who helps inspire action, ignite change, and provide connection, direction, and power. With over 20 years of experience leading corporate innovation and sustainability, she was named by Industry Era as one of the top 10 most inspiring women leaders of 2020. She is a thought leader on the 2023 Forbes Business Council, and her work was honored at the White House as part of its Energy Data Initiative. Tabitha's talks focus on the transformational power of human dynamics to create sustainable business growth and success. Also a best-selling author, she currently serves as a partner at Epic Pivot, advising on engagement, innovation, and cutting-edge leadership practices for large organizations. Tabitha is known for her groundbreaking expertise in leveraging the principles of modern and ancient energy bioscience to accelerate innovation, productivity, and success for organizations. She led efforts to create the world's largest solar power community and initiated three net-zero communities. Tabitha has published dozens of original works in leading industry publications like Forbes, Success Magazine, the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, the Encyclopedia of Energy Engineering and Technology, and CEO Magazine on energy, human dynamics, behavior change, and avoiding burnout. On LinkedIn, she's Tabitha A. Scott. On Twitter, she's at Scott Tabitha. And you can read more of her profile at epicpivot.com. Now let's listen as Jeff talks to Tabitha. Tabitha, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. It's Friday here in Kansas City. You're coming live uh, via Zoom from Nashville, right? Nash Vegas, as we locals <laughs> like to call oh, there it there you go. There you go. Um yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. I just, uh, how we met was uh, funny because you're so impressive and you, what you've done in your career. Uh, and I'll never forget that. Uh, Randy Powell had a podcast here in uh, Kansas City, Lessons in Leadership. 
and which allowed people to actually be part of the uh, Zoom call uh, while the guest was uh, speaking about there. And uh, I don't know who was on the on the uh, who was the guest that day, but you reached out to me on the chat and said, hey, I just checked out your LinkedIn and I might have a job for you if you're looking. And I'm not on camera because I'm not feeling well and I'm still in my pajamas <laughs> laugh out loud. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I just thought that was amazing. Um, so yeah, so um, I like to start out with a fun question. Um, so we're, you know, we've done, I don't know how many Zoom calls uh, since uh, March of 2020, but uh, what's the craziest uh, attire somebody uh has appeared on a Zoom call you've been on uh, that they wore? The craziest attire, it would probably be a a um, keynote that I did for White Castle's leadership team, and it was before Christmas. And everyone dressed as their favorite Christmas movie character. <laughs> so when nice. I came on, uh, I had a room full, and it was a Zoom of very Christmas um, decorated individuals. And it was very fun. I wore um, antlers for that call. Nice. So it was pretty good. Nice. Love it. Uh, just a quick aside, I, in college at four o'clock in the morning, I had 23 White Castle burgers in in the oh, South Bronx. that just makes Bronx. my belly hurt. I can't even <laughs> think about that. Ugh. <laughs> Not that nothing against White Castle, but 23, yeah. that's yes. a lot. My friend, my college friends still talk about it. And I think the number goes up every year, but it, it actually is 23. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I, it was, yeah, it wasn't a fun uh, Sunday uh, the, the next uh, morning. But anyhow, um, so I, I'd like to. Uh, dive into your uh, career, but I'd like to talk about, you know, childhood, not that we're, you know, the, the podcast is the corporate couch, but we're not going to get deep into it. But growing up, what what did you want to be when you became an adult? What was your kind of, you know, love or passion and like, saying, I want to be this when I grow up? Oh, man, I wanted to be Evil Knievel. Do you know who that is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He was a motorcycle stuntsman and he was like my hero at the time. I, I didn't play Barbie like the other girls. I really had a evil Knievel toy that was a wind up doll and it took off on its motorcycle and we lived on a small farm. So I had three horses and, you know, six chickens and two ducks and three cats and two dogs and, um, oh, an older sister as well. So it was fun just getting to grow up with animals and out in nature. And uh, so I always thought maybe I'd do something with animals or motorcycles or something adventuresome. So did you ever set up a ramp for your bike and try to jump over a few things? Oh, for bikes and skateboards. And there were Charlie's Angels stickers on my skateboard. So I'm go. dating myself now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I won't talk about the Farrah Fawcett poster I had in my bedroom. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so growing up, uh, what were kind of your passions? Um, uh, I, I know you, uh, I think you were into sports. I I was pretty sporty growing up. Um my sister was kind of the the one that had the good grades and um, just had a lot of the habits you would think of for the um, good student, you know, and traditional 
um, types of, of things. And we both played sports a little bit. I was kind of known as um, the one with the, the crazy personality or the funny one between us. And so, um, yeah, I loved doing basketball and um, softball, volleyball, anything that was active, we would, um, it's funny because um, people that I hang out with now, they talk about going to like sailing camp growing up and I said, well, for us in Kentucky, that was dragging the John boat out to the pond, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> Love it. and riding around in the John boat. And so there were so many adventures that I had in my own mind. Um, I would make little like, um, what are they called? Carts, like chariots out of wire baskets and wheels that were in the barn or the garage. And then get my dog, this Dalmatian, um, a one-eyed Dalmatian to pull me around in it. Like, oh, you know, I was some kind of adventurous warrior. So any kind of adventure I could dream up, um, we, we did. And having school teachers as parents, um, they were elementary school teachers. They were always encouraging of that curiosity, whether it was nature and, you know, the function of every insect and animal, that we came across and how important each one's role was or just being creative and design. And, you know, it was okay to build whatever I built as long as when the front porch light came on, I knew it was time to come in. Yeah, that's great. I mean, what a great lesson uh, that your parents, I mean, curiosity is just so important um, in, in every aspect, whether it's professional or personal relationships. I mean, it's, it's a sign of, you know, uh, I forget Einstein's quote about it, but uh, uh, I think curiosity is the, you know, creative act of genius or something like that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. So, um, so you go to high school, you're thinking about college and you, you a little bit of sports background. You also play piano, I believe. A little bit. Yeah. Growing up, I played the piano by ear. I wish that I knew how to play reading the music. But um, yeah, we grew up in a Southern gospel environment. We were three times a week churchgoers growing up. And so, you know, my dad insisted we be there at those times. And I began playing the piano, I guess, around the age of four. And we had lots of fun. I would do special musics uh, for church. And then I went, uh, when I went away to college, I didn't play for many, many years. And just in recent years, probably about five years ago, I bought myself a piano and decided it was time to play again. Nice, nice. So um, you graduate uh, high school and then you decide to go to uh, University of Louisville. Yeah. And you became a finance major. Were you were you interested in finance in like high school? Jeff, it's so funny. What I was interested in in high school was like writing notes with my friends and <laughs> goofing <laughs> off. It was it was not thinking about college. And our little rural high school in Kentucky, uh, whenever I talked to the counselor about like, how do I choose a college? Um, my parents went to a college for teachers and um, I wanted to be in business. I wanted to do something different, but I didn't have any exposure to business people in my life. And so I said, how do I pick one? And she said, oh, honey, all colleges are just about the same. You've got good scores. So just pick one. And not having any experience or exposure, um, you know, outside of what we knew with the education career path, 
I just thought to myself, well, Louisville is the biggest city in Kentucky. So since it's a big city, they probably have business. And so that's how I picked my college and it worked out. And then I picked finance because um, math is really fun for me and easy. Accounting, on the other hand, was the most dreadful class on earth. Um, and I was like, hey, I love math. So I'm going to do finance. And so out of the 500 or so students, there were two of us um, females. And I thought, well, hey, this is fun. I'm going to just dig this program. So it was it was really fun. So the, uh, and the whole program, there was only two fa- females in finance? There was, there was. Now that's changed a lot, I'm sure these days, but back in those days, there weren't very many women going into the finance track, but I picked it because there was a lot of math involved. And one of the bits of advice that my dad gave me when I was in college that I thought was interesting was if you are naturally geared towards something like my personality naturally would be more of a marketing or sales personality, probably people would guess But um, I trained myself up in technology and programming and really understanding more about things that didn't naturally intrigue me at the time, but it made all the difference in the world because you're either the person that is with all of the marketing people that also knows about technology or you're the person working in technology that sees how to sell it and relate it and, you know, talk about it to others. And so it, it was really good advice that he had. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, So did you take programming uh, uh, courses in college then? I sure did. Yeah, my first job was actually, or not my first job, my first job was an overnight operator, GTE operator. That was back before 911. So I would work the night shift on that. And then I was taking 16 hours of classes during the day. It was a crazy busy time. Wow. And then um, the next job was Capital Holding Corp. And I was a um, program analyst. So I would program of how to um, change reports from like paper to be electronic. And we introduced this funny thing called like, uh, was it Lotus Notes? Oh, yeah. And Excel and like how to communicate by email. So these were in the early, early days of... Um, programming. So yeah, my first job was for a systems analyst at Capital Holding Corp. Nice. Okay. I just have to ask you when you were a GT operator, what was the craziest call you got? It was my first call. My first call, someone was having a heart attack. And um, yeah, and I assume it was a heart attack. They were just saying, I'm, I can't breathe in my heart. You know, like my chest is getting tight and, and you need to send somebody. And I was like, where, where are you? You know, you have to find where they are. And then you would have to go look up in a book to find the number for that city and state. And what would happen is people would call you all the time and say like, the barn's on fire, get over here, you know, and they assume, you know, what city, who who they were. And so, man, technology has been a real blessing for 911 because now they can trace, you know, where someone's calling, it's automated. So thank God for AI and automation in our calling, you know, emergency calling response. How did you, uh, so you became a systems analyst. How did you uh, obtain that position right after college? It was actually during college and it was another one of those um, just happenstance things where we had, I had a class and it was a comms class and it was a business writing class. 
And one of the exercises was to create a resume and we had to create a resume and our assignment was to send it to two companies. And again, I just said, okay, what's the biggest company in Louisville? (laughs) It was Capital Holding. And uh, I think it was UPS at the time. So I sent them resumes just as part of the class assignment. And somebody called and said, do you want a job? So. Oh my God. Incredible. It's a, uh, I think that's a pretty progressive though for uh you know, that a, a college would do that back in, you know, uh, whenever you went to school, but it wasn't like yesterday. Because I still think, um, you know, colleges, you know, they, they teach you about the major, but they really don't teach you how to get a great job. But that's a, that's a, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really, yeah. really, really hard. And I think one of the things that I learned as well, um, people kind of, and, and it's so funny, depending on your perspective, at that point, um, leaders, once I was working there, said, well, I can't believe they chose you. They usually don't pick from state schools, which I was kind of clueless about. You know, they go for the private schools or they go for, you know, the Ivy Leagues or whatever it is. And something that I've learned, Jeff, along the way is that the more complexity we have, the more we can be exposed to different things and different types of schools and different people, I feel like it makes us better rounded as leaders. You know, if, if I hadn't been exposed to, you know, a small farm or been exposed to certain things, you know, public schools, for example, I've learned a lot more complexity about the world than people that may not have as much exposure of that. And so sometimes people are like, well, you know, don't you feel like you're at a disadvantage because you didn't start out, you know, with this path of, you know, fraternity network. And I'm like, no, it's a blessing for all of us, depending whether it's your fraternity network, that's awesome. Or whether it's your, you know, Kentucky um, hanging out in the backfield with the dog, you know, like it's okay. Whatever your background is, it just adds complexity to whatever situation you have. It it makes you more relatable in different areas. So I think um, a lot of people have, some some significant bias there as far as what schools they went to or you know what boxes they've checked along the way and i tend to ask you know what makes you happy what you know what are your experiences that have made you most happy in your life and then focus on finding ways to align with those for the rest of your life i think colleges and universities you know they have a it's it's a big critical point in their evolution because they need to change. I mean, it's a different environment. There's so many different ways to learn and make a living. And, you know, I I think they're, you know, like newspapers, you know, there's something, you know, that, you know, uh, they need to evolve and, you know, get with the time. So it's going to be interesting to see what the, how that happens or if it happens. So uh, how long did you uh, stay at the holding company capital? Oh, probably three years, maybe. Yeah, and what made you three years? When I had uh, my first son, I changed jobs, and it it was just a very busy time finishing up school, having a new adorable baby, and um, I ended up moving closer to my hometown after about a year, and so that's when I changed jobs and got into uh, banking finance. You worked at your first job, you took your second, and it was in banking. I mean, did you start to have a career strategy at that point, or was it too early? I had no real exposure to what 
business careers were like. I just knew what TV, you know, what was on television. And so other than my own experience, I didn't know what to choose from, you know? So I, um, I learned from each one and took away, what do I love from this? And what do I not like from this? Like in banking, retail banking, I learned that there were a lot of rules. There was a lot of um, risk aversion and, um, you know, because they have to protect people's money. And I really enjoyed more creativity and risk taking. And so that's what led me into electronic payments, which was a new field um, that combined that technology studies that I had done and some work experience along with a brand new market that was untapped at the time, um, turning paper checks into electronics. And this was, you know, before PayPal even, we were creating the back-end warehouses and doing payments for the military that then spawned over into civilian payments. And so there was a lot of opportunity to create and develop new markets that had never been done before. And that was really exciting, but it was also a little branch off of the financial and banking, you know, industry. Right. So um, that experience there, was that, um, was that where you got your like first leadership role? I mean, everybody can be a leader, but on the org chart, you have people reporting to you, you know, was it, what was your first managerial experience? We had actually people reporting to you. What, what were you doing at that time? Yeah, it, it was that grew into, I was at a company called Fort Knox national company for 10 years. And during that time I started out, um, I remember my pay was something like 13,000 a year. And I started out as um, a customer service rep and I took phone calls and I learned the business and uh, made recommendations. And then I became an analyst with their um, private label visa program. And so I got to learn about that. And then um, they had this cash cow business of doing military car payments. And so they worked with big companies like Ford and GM and Mitsubishi and Nissan and um, they, I, um, so I had helped start the concept for the civilian payments off the back of that. And I was really excited about heading that direction. And it was one of those times where you get a, a, a redirection that you didn't necessarily want <laughs> where, you know, someone had a relative who just graduated school and they said, well, he's going to come run that. And we're going to put you over here in this old military allotments business. Why don't you go work there? So I tell you, Jeff, I was devastated and um, I almost left, but instead it ended up being the most powerful shift and the best thing that could have happened. So if bad things happen, write them out, look for the good in them, um, because I ended up working with the leaders there, the the board of, of directors and they allowed me to go knock on doors at the Pentagon and try to talk them into doing rent payments for privatized housing. Since we did car payments, maybe we could get the contract to do housing payments. And somehow this little bitty bank in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, got the contract to do this $12 billion revitalization for the army. So we're making rent payments for all these different companies. And that contract is still going on today. So wow. my first real leadership was growing that company, getting those contracts, and then ending up as CEO of, of that company. 
Wow. So what was the time frame uh, between when you were knocking on doors at the Pentagon and got the contract and then became the CEO? What, what was that time? Frame? Yeah, it was probably three to four years of knocking on doors because we did payments for off-base rentals sometimes. We had a program called Set Aside and it was, um, there are a certain number of rental units set aside um, off-base for people to live if there wasn't enough room on-base. And so we were already doing that program. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe we could set up like an event and we can invite the folks from the Pentagon, the folks in housing to come to us and invite housing office people to come into Louisville, Kentucky and talk about the set aside program and where that's going and kind of establish ourselves as the glue, you know, that hosts these things. And we did that. And so that was the first couple of years of establishing ourselves and then took it as we're already making payments you already trust us and know us. So can we work together to help you provide payments, um, you know, for the service members? Because, and it, it was, a, it was the product sold itself. I'm not going to give myself credit for this. <laughs> it was, you know, good for service members because they're being deployed. They're off to training. So it was dependable payment. It was good for the private developers that came in because, they can't collect different rent from all those different people, you know, in a efficient, timely manner. So it was worth it to them to pay us to go in and get the money directly from their paycheck um, and send it to them. And it was good for the army because they wanted privatized housing to work. It was a new business model. And so they needed to make sure that the government was getting the money to these private developers that were taking on all this risk. So yeah, it's incredible. I mean, so, you know, you become a leader, you, you know, and obviously CEO, but when you first became a leader, and even as a CEO, like, where were, where did you learn your leadership lessons? Like, what did you rely on to, you know, say, oh, God, now I'm a leader? What do I do? Well, a lot of mistakes along the way taught me very well. Um, so there's there's kind of two aspects of leadership that I think were important for me early on. Number one, going back to that little communications class that I had, they said, if you are writing a memo to a business person, make it one page and give them three very clear points. And so I was in the habit. I, I wasn't just awarded the CEO title or the titles that I had along the way. I always had to ask for them, always. And so I would write a memo and say, this is my idea. I will do these three things for your company. If I don't fire me in six months, that's okay. Um, will you take the risk? This is the title I want, you know, and that is how I've gotten every major promotion in my career. So I can't say enough about if you want something, ask for it. The worst thing that happens is they get mad and fire you. The second worst thing that happens is they don't do it. So if you're willing to take the risk, try it. And then the, the second aspect is the, the hardships teach you just as much. The no's are just as valuable as the yeses. Every no that you get is a gift because it redirects your energy. Your energy is still going and you don't have to treat a no as you know a place to stop. Instead, you can just look at it as a way to redirect your energy somewhere else. And so 
having the mistakes and the the lessons learned along the way, it was so important. And then owning them. I remember one time, one of the programmers, uh, we put together this whole system very quickly and you're dealing with federal employees payroll, you know, it's very, very sensitive information. And they had put a space in the code, literally a space. And what it had done was created, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in an error to one of the clients, you know, early on. And when this was caught, we had the option to keep it quiet to, you know, we had so many options and what I chose to do, and this goes back to growing up, you know, the way that you're raised, the way that makes you feel good as a person. I called them on the phone and said, this is what happened. I'm very sorry. I owned it, you know, and the the first thing I did before that was going to my boss and saying, I'm so sorry, here's what's happened. I can pay you back out of my paycheck. Um, you know, over time, it's going to take a while. Um, but, you know, we talked about how to do that. And to my surprise, you know, while it was a difficult move then to take that on and accept ownership for it, even though it wasn't my mistake, but instead of pointing the finger at somebody else, owning it was the best decision I could have made. A year later, when the other services were looking to the army to see, you know, did that system work? Should should we do the same kind of payment program? The guy that I had made the mistake to and picked up the phone and called at Fort Hood, Texas, he stood up and said, let me tell you the kind of people these are. Something happened and he told the story and it ended up being the testimony that helped us get the other services. And so you have to know that your authenticity is going to be appreciated way more than scapegoating to somebody else or, you know, the short term pleasure of dodging that bullet will come back to bite you in the end. Whereas um, owning it and moving forward in your mistakes and learning from them, I, there's so much wisdom, you know, to be learned there. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. I, uh, Harry Campbell who has been on the podcast. Uh, he's, you know, he's, his mantra was, you know, good news needs to travel fast, but bad news it has to travel even faster. You know, you need to tell everybody. And I think, you know, you made a key point too about being authentic. And I think that's one of the key attributes of a great leader. You have to be authentic because, you know, everybody's going to have bad days and you, you're, you know, everybody's human. Um, so. And it's not always accepted that well. The boss that I had at the time, Jim Fugit, um, was one of the most brilliant people I have ever met in my life. And he was a risk taker as well, as many entrepreneurs are. And um, he was very gracious with that mistake, with my learnings and encouraging, you know, and fostering as a mentor. But there have been other people over time that, you know, sometimes if you make a mistake and you admit it, you're you're gone or they're not happy with it. And so every leader is different. It's not always going to land as well as that situation did for me. But at the end of the day, you have to look in the mirror and decide, um, you know, what is my learning from this? And if if they are, you know, if they're so against the truth and hiding things 
And if they're at such fear of being exposed for mistakes, is that really a culture that I want to engage in? No, it's not. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, um, you have to have a, a learning culture and that the learning culture has to be accepting of mistakes, right? Cause you don't, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, you can't evolve uh, as a company and definitely as a person, if you don't make mistakes, you know, it's the fail forward uh, mentality. You know, I really love the, you know, asking for what you want and you, you got your, uh, you know, tuition, uh, ROI with that, just that one class <laughs> in terms of writing those memos. But do you think, uh, Tabitha, do you, that you were, because you were a woman that you had to ask and you weren't even looked upon as, you know, oh, she can become the VP or she can become the CEO. You know, I, um, again, I'm going to give a little credit um, this time to my dad, who was very tough on me growing up, but I think it made me feel like I could compete with anyone. And I actually had a bias up until maybe the last six years against working with or joining women only organizations, because I felt like either you're the best of the best or you're not. And so I just had such a natural, you know, evil Knievel kind of personality that it stimulated me to go up against the guys, you know. Um, whereas I've learned the wisdom in later years in life that women naturally have wonderful strengths. They are great listeners. They are, you know, they can balance many, many things at a time. I mean, science shows that their brains can wire all of these complexities together in a very special way. And part of their beauty and their strength and what makes them great in business also sometimes can hold them back. And, um, they're also often raised to be um, accommodating, you know, and so even self-included, you want everyone else to be happy. And so it, they struggle in asking for what they want. And so I literally flipped the switch about six years ago. And while I've mentored a lot of young women along the way, now I support any women's group that I can just to help people understand, hey, here's how you can ask for something, you know, and if you're not comfortable doing it all up front, let's let's talk about one thing that you enjoy about your job. And in your next year in review, find a way to do more of that and less of the things that you don't enjoy. And so it's helping them get there over time. And I have a real passion. My first book, Trust Your Animal Instincts, was written to help women stop being ruled by all of the shoulds from everybody else. You should be this perfect mom. You should work as much as the guys. You should have a meal on the table every night. You should be skinny. You should be pretty. You should wear makeup. You should not wear makeup. You know, like there's so many shoulds on us and we end up shoulding all over ourselves and uh, allowing other people to should on us too. And so I, I just felt this passion to help other women uh, realize your light and your passion is the most important thing in the world for you and follow that in if you can't do it all at once just do it little bite at a time and you're still moving in the direction that makes you happy i i love that i, I i'm just seeing a t-shirt that you can market you know don't shit on yourself you know <laughs> I, 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 I i see that and yeah i mean i think uh you know uh I think that the studies uh, during COVID said, you know, working moms were the most impacted 
uh, during COVID and the, you know, the change in the world and just because of those shoulds probably. Um, um, so I think that's uh, very important. Uh, what, what led you to write the book? I wrote it because I personally got to a point of burnout at the end of 2016, where I walked away from my career and, um, put my house on the market, gave away most of my things and lived in the jungle for a few months in the remote parts of Costa Rica. When I say remote, I mean, there was no address for the mailbox. There was no mailbox, no cell phone reception, no TV, no radio, no contact. And um, I had to go into the village to get Wi-Fi in order to communicate back and forth. Now, I didn't expect it to be that remote. I thought, oh, it looks like it's a few miles from the beach. So I'll just be able to rent a bike and pop on my bike. And I had no appreciation for how the dirt roads, like a pothole would be the size of a bathtub. You know, you can't ride bicycles there. And there are feral dogs that would come and try to eat you if you're on a bicycle. Like it, it is a very different world. But um, I wrote probably a hundred thousand or so words while I was there because I had spent the time I left for college until the time I left my job um, working, you know, every spare minute and raising a family. And there were so many life changes. Both of my sons had special situations medically going on and I couldn't fix that. And it just killed me that I couldn't make it better. And a divorce after 21 years and working in sustainability and clean energy where in the Southeast, people would say, well, you're turning your back on your state. This is the coal you know, country. And it was just, there were so many factors in my life that I never faced. I would just try to outrun them. And Jeff, I literally ran like six marathons in 18 months and many halves in between. And I didn't realize I was figuratively trying to outrun all of those things that happened to me along the way, rather than being present and living just in the moment and dealing with it and appreciating it. Um, so I wrote this book because that time away from everything and everyone gave me the space to see that we all are made of that same exact energy at our core, all of us, all the animals, plants, humans, everything. And we have the ability to recharge ourselves, but we got to stop allowing everybody else to drain our energy and realize what jazzes us up and find out how to do more of that. And so I really wanted women, especially raised in very conservative um, environments, know that it's okay if you have a different opinion, you know, once you grow up, it's okay if you want to have a different kind of job. Um, it's okay. Just stop being so hard on yourself and give yourself a little love. A couple of different things to, to comment on what you said and ask a question. The first is, so it was a one specific event or I shouldn't say one specific, but you know, was it our last straw uh, in 2016 where you said, okay, I'm done and I'm going to quit. And what was that? Yeah, I think it was just, it was like, um, kind of like Chinese water torture over the years where there would be like a drip drip of steady things and me not dealing with it. That was the key was I was just trying to be perfect for everyone, be the perfect executive, try to help my kids, you know, 
And what I lost in the process was taking care of myself. And when you do that, it it starts to turn in on you and it turns, it manifests in your health. And so I had a breast cancer scare. I went through a very invasive surgery, again, denying what was going on in my life. I ran a half marathon two weeks after the surgery, still with tubes and connections and, you know, things running all over my body. But somehow I thought I could prove I'm still whole if I run this half marathon. And um, I was in a meeting, an executive level meeting a couple of weeks after that. And, you know, nobody knew what was going on because again, I wasn't good about sharing. I hadn't told anyone that I had this cancer risk, that I had this major surgery. I just told my boss because I worked off site remotely. And I just said, you know, I've, I've got some procedures to do. I'm going to be out for a couple of days, you know, and it's like a Thursday. So nobody thought to think about it. So there I am in this meeting and I was just killing it. It was negotiations training and it was only senior leaders. So I wanted them to see me. It was important for them to see me as, hey, Tab can hold her own. This is good. So the leader of the class says, Tab, you're on the top of the leaderboards. Do you want to tell everybody here how you're able to negotiate all of these things? Like what's your winning strategy? And so this crusty old guy pipes up and and he says, well, clearly she raised her shirt and used her tits. And I was sitting right next to the HR director, who was a female, by the way. And she's like, oh, that's not good. I'm so sorry. You know, I'll mention that. That's not appropriate. And I was shell-shocked. Like, it was one of those times where you can't think of anything to say. And there were uncomfortable chuckles in the room. But, like, nobody said a word. You know, nobody said a word. And I just, there I was recovering, you know, from surgery, which they didn't know to be fair, but then to, to be so degraded in front of these global peers. I mean, we're senior vice presidents of a global organization. And um, that experience for me was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, I am done. (laughs) I need a break, you know, like I'm, I'm done. And so it, it was just a period of time after that, that um, I was like, I need a break from corporate life and I need to to freshen up and figure out what's next. You know, whoever said it, I don't know if it's attributed to any anyone or it's one of those uh, anonymous, but, you know, that's when you, for that guy, that's when you say, you know, men are pigs. I mean, like, just to <laughs> do that. And, and it, I mean, it's just crazy that it still happens. And that was 2016, right? Yeah, that's 2016. And I mean, there are, you know, there's many things that have happened over the years. And um, I tend to just kick right back has been my personality. But I know um, that that particular one, I was so beaten up at that point in my life. And it was right after, you know, I was empty nesting, a divorce, you know, like all of these things going on in my personal life. And then, you know, the cancer, the surgery. And then for that moment, it was like, it was all this, it came to this complete conclusion of, um, wow, something's not working in the wiring of how things are going here. And I need to make a major change in my life. And so I did. I know you were trying to, you know, uh, portray yourself or think of yourself as whole. So you do a half a marathon two weeks after. 
I mean, which but, makes no sense. Like well, I do it not makes no sense, but you are a badass by doing that. I mean, <laughs> not that you should have, but I'm just saying. Like, I think you meant you're... to say dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think most people would do anything after a, a major uh, uh, surgery. But uh, anyhow, um, so the other question I had too is like, how did you like you pick Costa Rica? I kind of get that, but like, how did you know where you like you went to some remote place in Costa Rica? Like, how did you even find the place? Jeff, it was kind of like picking my college in that I didn't have a clue. I just kind of relationally, I had a friend and I started um, languaging because I'm a big fan of what you want. If you language it, if you tell people, then somebody's going to hear it and know somebody, you know, that's the first step of making it real. And so I started asking people, I I really need somewhere to just disappear for a month or so. And if you know anyone that has a place I could rent, and I was thinking in the mountains, you know, just somewhere away, that was the criteria, just somewhere that was away from humans for a while. And, um, I had a friend that had a friend with a condo in Costa Rica, and it was actually near a surfing village, Nosara, which is on the Pacific side. And so there are, it was a surfing community. It wasn't large, but it did have Wi-Fi and things like that. And so I assumed if it's, you know, someplace that surfers go, that it would have roads. I just, I didn't know what I was getting into. But, it, you know, it all worked out. It was safe. The The people there are wonderful. The Ticos and Ticas, um, the food. I can't recommend Costa Rica enough. That area since my younger son and I went back five years later after I was there and wrote the book. And um, unfortunately, it has been kind of overtaken by tourists. And so what once was you know, I was an anomaly as an American uh, down there and people spoke the local language. Now it's a, it's a bunch of yuppie tourists and, um, you know, it's a very different environment. So I was very fortunate at the time to be able to to visit there and experience the way it was. Yeah, it's interesting because a, a theme on, with some of my guests is they didn't really know what they wanted to do. But they would just say, I, you know, I need to be remote and isolate myself. And you really let, you know, whatever you believe in, universe, God, you know, brought you to Costa Rica, right? You just put it out there that you needed to, you know, take time for yourself. And and, and Costa Rica came, you know, came to you. So it's interesting. So what was your day like? You were 100,000 words you wrote uh, while you were down there? I wrote a lot. I um, I hiked a lot. Um, loved hiking through the jungle. Loved hiking on the cliffs. I did yoga every day. Um, I, and there I am. I'm upside down, and my whole life's upside down. And I would take this tattered towel out, and um, there was this like ledge near a giant banyan tree, uh, the kind like they have in the movie Avatar. You know, the beautiful trees. And I would do yoga and these bats would come every day. And this was during the day. They would come out and light near me, seven of them. I named them after the seven dwarfs. And what I finally learned from them was, um, you know, bats can't take off from the ground. They're not like other things that fly, like birds that can just take off. They have to risk letting go and falling to their death. 
in order to fly. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful lesson you are teaching me here. When I feel like my life is totally upside down and that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. You know, I was put here to be upside down and I just need to let go. I need to let go of all this shit that's been holding me back. I need to let go of trying to please everyone, trying to be this perfect executive, trying to be all things to all people. And I need to embrace and take off and fly with what the heck and, you know, invigorates me, what energizes me, um, which at this point in life is, is helping others and it's bringing balance back to this world. You know, I, I bought the URL, I am change because I think so many people they're focused on how do I feel about things versus who am I being right now? And we all need to be the change to bring balance back into this world. And um, I am being that change, you know, not every day, but every time I can, I think about being that change and, and you are too, Jeff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I uh, we talked a little bit before we went uh, on the recording, but I love Ryan Holiday, and one of his great sayings is, um, and I forget which book it's from. Uh, it, it's we're we're human beings, being not human doings. So, yes. I mean, I think we, especially with your uh, career and, uh, you know, I think hard charging executives uh, everywhere and just people, you know, they want to just, uh, you know, what's the life hack? Uh, you know, how can I be more productive? It's like farming, you know, you can't hurry the the crop <laughs> to harvest, mm -hmm. right? It's a process and, and most things are, but, you know, we're in an instant gratification society you're so right. And you know, it, it starts with those two words and think about it. Anything that you put after the words, I am, it shapes your day. It shapes your week, your month, your year. I am um, learning. I am, um, you know, fill in the blank. I am sick. Okay. You will be sick if that's what you constantly are saying out your mouth. You know, I am powerful. I am strong. I am curious versus, you know, I am upset. I hate the world. You know, whatever you fill in the blank to be is who you will become because that's who you're being. And it doesn't really matter how I'm feeling about it if I act in a different way. And so it's all about ontologically, how are you showing up? How are you acting into what you want to be? Yeah, 100%. Let's fast forward to uh, today. So uh, explain uh, your company and what you do. Yeah, I work with a group of like-minded people at Epic Pivot. And the name of the company implies exactly what we do. We work with organizations to take research and insights. We have a team of ethnographers and anthropologists that uh, really dig into empathy for customers, for B2B. And then we use innovation strategy to create these purposeful transformations. And what I mean by that is um, if, if a company is not aligned to values that we agree with, we won't take the work. Um, we feel like we're at a place in time where companies are ready to stand up and start thinking about being sustainable, setting organizational culture, 
in a positive way, helping people not burn out to be better listeners, to have empathy. And so we're at this point in time and we're all taking our background and our executive experience to help companies grow and transform themselves um, one person at a time, one company at a time. Wow, fantastic. I mean, I know, you know, we talked a little bit about culture and how important that is. And I, it just amazes me that the, the, I think the vast majority of companies don't really care about the culture, you know, and it's, you know, culture is not putting, you know, foosball tables in, ping pong tables. It's, it's a lot more than that in, in terms of their benefits and having free snacks and, you know, uh, uh, I guess great coffee, but um yeah. That helps though. Yeah, no, yeah, it's part I like of it. snacks. <laughs> no, I like snacks too. I'm I'm Italian. I love to eat. So there you go. Um so tell me a little bit about like what's your what's your ideal customer for Epic? For Epic Pivot, it, it's really any type of customer. We do a lot of work with CX, for example, with companies that are trying to either start up a CX division or really hone in on what their customers need and want. Um, this was my first time working with anthropologists and ethnographers. You know, the biggest employer of anthropologists in the world is Microsoft. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. And so evidently companies really, um, it's like the next level of finding out what people really need. And so CX is a big area, um, executive leadership, helping change the culture of the organization. We've been doing a lot in the last couple of years with things like cognitive diversity, getting beyond those protected rights from the 1960s, which are demographics based, like women or, you know, ethnicities and things, that's kind of table stakes. We all should be doing that now and shame on us if we're not, but it's working at the next level. How do we think differently? How do we integrate AI and technologies and bots into the workforce? And looking at the balance of that. And that's um, that constant change and churn of what you need based on where you are on the growth curve um, with aligning what those skills are, whether it's um, technological, um, like bringing in technologies or humans. And that's what I call human dynamics now is this practice of constantly changing what you need to have this very adaptable adaptable company and adaptable systems. So, you know, all the natures are in all, all of the answers that we need are in nature. I want to get back to the human dynamics, but I want to unpack something you said. So I, you know, I looked at your number of degrees. So you had the, you know, the master's in bank management and the, uh, the MBA, uh, in, uh, finance, but I also saw you had a, you got a MIT certification in blockchain. So you're, it's phenomenal because I, so talk a little bit uh, really on the uh, cognitive diversity or I, I, I'm not sure you called it that, but like, is that like determining what things AI is going to support versus an actual human? Companies really aren't evolved yet at that point. Very few companies are thinking in terms of how technology is part of the workforce. I wrote a blog, I think about four years ago, maybe five years now, it was in 2018, yeah, five years ago, on the integration, how NASA had begun integrating bots into their workforce to do root, routine things. And you're a tech person. I mean, you know, automation, AI, you know, there's a lot of automating we can do. We used to put 
um, like irrigation systems, for example, instead of people having to go check them every day and turn them on and off, we put sensors in them. And then it said, hey, I need rain or I don't need rain. And it was automated. And so that just is part of business. But looking at it as a package, we've done less of that. We've done more of for the epic pivot role. We've done more of working with companies of like type teams versus diverse thinking types of teams. And we're getting ready to release um, a set of six double blind studies we've done with Fortune 500 companies where we had them in like type groups, thinking style. We um, graphed them on the growth curve and they, they don't know this. They're clueless. They're just in a workshop having fun. They don't know that they're in groups for a reason. And then we do them in diverse thinking type groups. Like we would have all of the people at the beginning of the curve that love change in a group the people that love finding risk and killing it in another group. Um, and then in the second you know, demonstration later in the day, we put them in diverse thinking types. And every single time the numbers go up for an innovation exercise and a productivity exercise. And so the key thing that we're helping companies understand is diversity you know, goes beyond the color of your skin and your gender, it really gets into how do we think differently as well? How are we contributing to this team? And the tools we use to do that are based on ethology, adaptation, you know, attachment, cybernetics. So it's based on these laws of physics and science. So if you want to move, if you want to get going fast, then again, focus on how you're being and you know how you're showing up. And if you're showing up as risk averse, or you're showing up as you know loving change, then you bring different value to a team. But a team with all one or all the other is not as valuable as a team with a diverse mix. Very interesting. I uh, what I love about the podcast is when I talk to smart, caring people like yourself, I'm learning. So, so anthropologists with companies, so Microsoft, you said, and you're, you have uh, some that work for you. What, what actually do they do for companies? Yeah, they do all kinds of things. They ride along with plumbers to go into people's homes and, you know, experience how they are impacted by like their water heater, for example. Um, that's one client. We worked with Coppertone um, and took the scientist that made SPF out and he visited people that have eczema and listened to them for a day with an anthropologist. And after a few different times um, of being in these homes, they were driving to the next patient and he started to cry like he got really upset and they're like what what gives what's going on and he said i've spent my whole career working on spf and i never knew the struggle that people with eczema had i'm going to change what i'm doing and create something special for them and because of that empathy he went back and he did and created something special for them and that was when we were working with Merck at the time and its brands. Um, another example is Dr. Scholes. We had um, you know, different people come in and, and do different studies. We had people talk about wearing high heels and take off their shoes and show us their bunions. And you know, um, they learned so much from people. And then they started making prototypes of how to, what do we really need? And what they learned was 
nobody's two feet are exactly the same. You know, nobody knows what to buy. And so they came up with this kiosk as a result. That kiosk, interestingly, we took to um, Walmart in the early days and they're like, oh, pound sand, we don't have time for you. Nobody has space for a kiosk. We're all about shelf space, you know, go away. And so another store adopted it and um, that grew so fast, that kiosk, that it was three times the revenue of all their shelf space and all of their stores and their online revenue, like blew up. So then we get called back to Walmart to say, hey, why don't you put this in our stores? And we're like, wait a minute, we, we already brought this to you, <laughs> but it, it's a fun story. And it it always comes from what the customers do. And, and back in the day that I led innovation for companies, we would start with brainstorming because you already knew the problem. And so you started with brainstorming and now human design, you know, the Stanford design thinking method backs you up and it says, no, don't start with the problem, start with empathy. And then based on empathy with the customer. So that's anthropologists are that empathy phase uh -huh. and then defining based on what you find out in the empathy, what are the real needs and wants, AKA problems. And then you get into designing, you know, prototyping, which is where I would usually pick up a problem and go forward. So it's, it's kind of backing that up in modern times. God, it's, it's fascinating, really fascinating. Um, so I know you're writing a series of articles for Forbes on human dynamics. So just share a little bit about that and what drove you to that topic. Yeah, it's it's really fun. It's watching companies that are changing so fast and they just keep chasing change, but they can't keep up with it. And so what I have learned over 20 plus years of doing innovation is you can have the best idea on earth and it goes back to the laws of nature and physics. If it's not on somebody's radar already on their plan, if they don't have resources or time or financial resources, you're going to get an equal and opposite reaction and your idea is not going to go anywhere. And so it's finding out where is the momentum, where do people want to go and then finding ways to get behind that with your ideas. So human dynamics is about how we need to constantly be changing dynamically how we contribute in the workplace. And I'm focusing on human dynamics now. The next book, maybe it'll be on integration of technical, you know, technology with that. But you need a different team composition based on where you are on the growth curve. So maybe the marketing team might need to be skewed with more people towards the bottom of the curve that love change, strategy, marketing, innovation, design might need to be skewed that direction. Your teams in accounting, compliance, legal might need to be in the other direction, engineering, you know, 85% or so of the engineers that are successful in Purdue's program are in a very certain quadrant, you know, and they're at the top of that growth curve. And so starting to think about people and our teams as we would in nature. Where, where is that team in the growth curve? Where is that person most stimulated along that curve? And then matching it up and changing it for every sprint you do, because every project you do is going to be different and require a different team. Really interesting. That's great. Um, so your second book will be, uh, the topic will be the human dynamics? Yeah, it's going to be called Current, and it's going to be um, Current, 
um, human dynamics for fast forward companies. And it's called current because it's, it's a play on, of course, energy is the root of all things and having both the electrical and the human biofield energy background, everything I do is about like getting people to move. And so it's that current that runs beneath all of us, but it's also in quantum um, science, there is no time like we experience it here where we're always watching our clocks and our calendar. There is only the present, my friend, which is current. Love it. it. (laughs) I'm so excited. Yeah, that's great. When when, when, uh, will the book launch? I don't even know yet. I've just started the conversation with some publishers and I'm very excited about how that's going and depending on which one I choose or if I decide to resort back to self-publishing like I did my first one, it it could take six to eight months depending who I decide to go with, but it's exciting. Yeah, well, I will look forward to it. I'm sure many others will. So just to wrap up, uh, I'd like to... You kind of impart your wisdom on, on two different groups of people. One, uh, I'm very empathetic to the uh, recent college graduates for their getting their first job. So any advice you have for someone coming out of college and you know what to do in terms of a, a, you know starting their career? Yeah, work for free. And that sounds really crazy. So you might have to take a job delivering papers, doing anything just to pay the bills, but offer to work for free. It's something that I've done. It's something I've recommended to my sons. And what I mean by that is what is your dream job? If your dream job is to work for the CEO of Kellogg's, then find somebody in Kellogg's and, um, you know, in a leadership position and say, I will do this for you for free if you will give me a chance. And it's a way to get your foot in the door. And, you know, if nothing else, make a contact, if nothing else, show your capabilities. But time and time again, if you are willing to give something away and you can make those relationships, then you can start to worm your way into the door and um, get a proper job. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, I like that a lot. That's uh, that's good. There, I know there's a a lot of other uh, smart people like yourself that have that advice. Uh, and then the second group is like you're, you know, you just became a leader. You're have, you now you're supervising people. You know, what advice would you have for an emerging leader and uh, wanting to become a great one? Yeah, I think the key thing is understanding that everyone is valuable if in the right spot. And so don't see people's actions as being necessarily out to get you or obstinate, see them as thinking a different way. And, you know, back to our growth curve example, if you're, if you love change and somebody's always saying, we don't need to change that, try to view it as they're trying to protect you or stabilize the environment. They're trying to keep you out of trouble and it's, it's worth listening to them every now and then for sure. So I would just say, you know, have the advice that um, have a little grace with people and give them the benefit of the doubt first, even if they are out to get you or being obnoxious, it helps you as a leader psychologically to not focus on that because it takes you down a rabbit hole. Stay positive. Know that there is value. There's some reason that you're that they are being obstinate and try to listen or, or figure out what that reason is. Remember, the no's are as important as the yeses. 
Tabitha, thank you so much for being a guest. You're phenomenal. I have a, a ton of respect for you. And You're uh, phenomenal. I have a ton <laughs> of respect for you too. And thank you for doing this podcast series. It's awesome. Yeah. No, thank you for being a guest and uh, have a great, uh, a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Jeff. Such a great episode with Tabitha Scott. Anytime I can hear about White Castle and Evil Knievel in a podcast, I love it. Uh, but I just thought it was really authentic of her and talking about her, you know, burnout in 2016, where she quit her job and she had a lot of personal things going on in terms of a divorce and health issues and dealing with medical situations with her with her two boys. It's just what what a great what a great leader and a great person. Joe, what did you think about the episode? Yeah, you know, when she first was starting to talk about uh, jungle. And I was thinking, okay, now you're going to be talking about jungle metaphorically, you know, uh, is what I thought. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, she's actually talking about a real tropical jungle in Costa Rica. Uh, that, that That's a pretty gutsy move. I actually did something similar to that a few years ago when I was kind of at a point in my life where I had to make some decisions. I took a week off uh, I didn't go to a jungle, but I actually went to Las Vegas, um, but not in Las Vegas itself. I drove about an hour out of town and into the desert of Nevada and got an Airbnb and stayed there for a week, literally all by myself, just to think. Nothing but spending a week in the uh, desert in Nevada, just thinking about my life and where I was going to go from there. And it, it was a life-changing experience. So I would recommend that to anybody. You, it may not be a jungle for you. It may not be a Nevada desert for you. But there is something that you can do to isolate yourself for some period of time when you've got some decision to make or some transition to do in your life or something like that. I would highly recommend taking the time and doing that. You'll come out as a better person because of it. Yeah, and I just love how she just got to choose Costa Rica, like something drew her there. You know, she didn't know where she was going to go. She just needs, knew she had to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Joe, any parting thoughts uh, for the audience on leadership? Yeah, I'm reminded of the words of the great Michael Scott when he said, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.